0: This episode is brought to you by Victoria Police. Are you made for more? Search Police Careers to find out. At the Female Athlete Project, we often talk about female athletes who should be household names because of the incredible things that they have achieved. Amanda Hardy is one of those athletes. She is a sporting legend. She competed at two Olympic Games in badminton. She won two Commonwealth Games bronze medals. She had a number five world ranking. Her journey spans across 45 different countries. She joined the Victoria Police in 1997, where she now works as a senior sergeant. She would fly overseas for tournaments on six days off after finishing her night shifts and showed incredible resilience and dedication throughout her sporting career. Amanda shares some incredible stories. Uh, She's a ball of energy and I absolutely loved the chance to chat to her. I hope you enjoy this one. Amanda, welcome to the Female Athlete Project. Thanks, Chloe. Really happy to be here. I'm, um, we've been chatting a little bit off air beforehand. I feel like you've got some very cool stories from your life already to share with us. So I'm excited to get into this one, but can you take us back and describe what Amanda was like as a little kid?
1: So uh, a lot of energy. In fact, um, I was probably one of those kids that got uh, report cards that would say, yes, uh, gets on with it, but disruptive uh, with everyone else. It'd be nice if she'd let everybody else get on with it. As well, <laughs> um, and yeah, so played lots of sports. Um, I was fortunate; I grew up in an area uh, in the western suburbs, where uh, and opposite a school oval. So we were—I was always either playing uh, soccer, mainly with the boys at that time, um, on the school oval, or cricket, or running athletics, or hitting a tennis ball against the wall. Uh, pretty much anything. I think my parents would say, "No worries." As soon as it was light. Uh, off you go and then they would just be after dark I'd be riding back with on my bicycle and they'd be like it's yeah, probably better if you come back during daylight but yeah let's hope that she's uh, used all that energy up.
0: <laughs> and was there any particular reason that you loved sport and being so active?
1: Oh, look, I come from a family who were quite sporty. So um, both my sisters played sport. They were really good at uh, netball and they uh, rode horses and things like that. My parents, uh, my dad played uh, rugby union in England. Uh, my mum was uh, very athletic, so she was really good at athletics, but also um, both in service industries in um, the Air Force. And she was a go-kart champion, for instance, in in the Air Force, also rode horses. So. Um, and then, yeah, I think just, um, being opposite the school, um, and at playtime, um, just wanting to get amongst it rather than sort of sitting around reading and things like that. And, uh, so they got me into bat tennis programs early and, and I've got pretty good hand-eye coordination, uh, and was quite quick. So don't put me in anything in, uh, to endurance, but, um, yeah, I think that was, that was how I ended up doing it and it was the best way to keep me out of trouble
0: and can you tell us a bit about what was called the big m little league in in south melbourne your experience with footy as a kid
1: yeah so um so going across to the school across the road i walked across there with the boy who lived next door and i remember walking up to the people who were running the football program there and i said um hey look we'd, we'd like to play and look if you won't let me because i'm a girl i'm um, can you let him play so at least i was um, not just thinking about myself at the time. Um, but, yeah, so they said, yep, we uh, we everybody comes and plays here. So we were playing and we play each week at different schools and uh, they'd said, look, we're going to try and um, see if we can uh, get you into the Big M Little League because back then uh, girls didn't play in the Big M Little League. And this was a long time ago because it was South Melbourne and not Sydney. Um, and I remember being on the ground at Seahome Primary School and the runner came out. To myself and my best my best mate Kate, and said um, they've agreed you you guys are allowed to play or you girls are allowed to play, um, and we were so excited. And um, so we fronted up at the Western Oval, back in the day when you played the whole ground, and uh, they didn't have a change room for us, of course. So um, we had to be changed, get changed in the umpires' room. We didn't care where we changed as long as we were allowed to wear the same shirt you know um so I was number 11 Mark Browning back then and uh and really excited kicked a point but we got flogged so (laughs)
0: the score doesn't matter you got to play that's the best part
1: right (laughs) oh and and it is that really is the big thing and I know um when the AFLW was realized and all that I I, in fact it makes me emotional now because back then I played in the school team and uh in we primary school team and then both of us played in the high school team and literally I can still remember then too, uh, both of us were, would often be in the best um, few on the ground and one week we were um, playing and the next week it was determined we weren't allowed to play because we'd reached that cutoff age and there was nowhere to go and so we would still kick footies with each other and the boys still loved to kick footies with us, you know, they were they didn't care. Um But the rules cared. So when I saw AFLW uh, realised and for these um, girls, um, I just get so excited. Um, It's a huge step forward.
0: It's really interesting and I think for me because I now get to play AFLW, I grew -hmm. up in Sydney where it wasn't a big thing. I grew up in a rugby family and so footy wasn't something I ever really knew about or understood. And so it's really cool I think because one of the biggest reasons that I saw AFLW on the TV and wanted to try it it was because I thought they did such a good job of this storytelling piece and for me to understand this idea that there were so many incredible women who had played the game for decades who never got the chance to play at the highest level so it's really cool like it's a real honor to have the chance to chat to women like you who I can imagine might have been a best and fairest in the AFLW
1: if you had your time <laughs> at that top level. Well I would have done my best you know um yeah it's and and that's the thing and I'd look one of the things is whilst we don't want the barriers and we've had barriers for far too long, um our adaptability to go from sport to sport because at times a because at times we have to um but b because we just have that um, resolution that we we're playing you know and we want to achieve and we want to test ourselves and challenge ourselves just as much so um for me, it did mean that I was quite adaptable um with other sports I then moved into lacrosse you know and at first I played in the boys team you know until um I wasn't allowed to play in the boys team anymore and there wasn't a local girls team and then so I revisited that later but I think we're more readily able to adapt our skills across because we have to and we just won't accept that um you know you've got this whole um kit that you can dig into but certain rules or certain cultures or certain things are going to say, well, well, we'll decide when you can pull those out, you know. So, and I've got to say, along the way, um, people have been very good to try and um, fit, fit, in, fit you in where they could, but it's nice to be able to not have to consider um, gender or any of those things to say whether I'm going to go out and play some sport tomorrow, you know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting, that idea of the versatility piece, because I think as you touched on, it's something that so many female athletes have almost because they've had to, not necessarily by choice. Like I love the freedom Mm -hmm. of choice that we have, but I think sometimes our hand is almost a little bit forced because of other barriers that have been put in place.
1: I think that's absolutely the case. And I think, um, and, and, you know, we might be able to say that some of the males would be just as adaptable but they didn't have to so um so they therefore like i loved tennis you know i i absolutely loved playing um tennis but just by way of um we'll probably get being burnt out actually as a tennis player because um uh, my coach saw opportunity and and really sort of progressed me too quickly to the point where it just wasn't fun anymore and and all of that. But being able to adapt those skills and then uh, go and play badminton, which is a completely different sport, um, but there are um, aspects that are similar um, with the sort of the hand-eye coordination. Uh, But then I I absolutely think playing the football and the lacrosse and the cricket and playing soccer and maybe brandy at lunchtime with the – other kids and all that it it teaches you elements of cross-training and to me that's probably what's helped later on in my career when I was more serious and and um, you know looking for world standing and all of that was you're always looking for that edge because it's great to win games and do that but you always know you can do better and if we just stick to what the traditional program is for your one sport then You know, I find that limiting. So I think early on, where I just went, well, if they're going to let me play this this week, I'll play something something different next week. Um, Later on in life, where I've had to be quite adaptable and agile, not just in sport but in work, I have no issue with that because that's that's actually life for me. So yes, it's. I think it's we've progressed because you can stay in the same sport and not have to fight just to be allowed to play your own sport. But it doesn't mean that you can't bring in these other elements that you can learn from from all walks of life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear the story about how you got to the point of choosing to pursue badminton.
1: Yeah, so um I was a tennis player. I uh, loved it. As I said, I used to wait um with my bare feet uh, in the um car park opposite the um in the school opposite and uh, wait for all the teachers to move their cars so I could actually hit against the wall. So I'd stand there in my bare feet with my big tennis racket, which was half the size of me, and my tennis ball, and just stand there with a long face, looking at these teachers going, "Please move your cars. It's after school. Go home so I can hit." <laughs> and um, and then it, as I say, I uh, started getting entered in a lot of tournaments and well above my age group and playing adults and all of that at ten 11 and eleven, and and got burnt out really um, pretty young to the point where it wasn't as enjoyable. Um, so my parents, seeing that I wasn't playing tennis anymore, just thought oh, she could become a problem here because of her energy. Um, so I was entered in a badminton tournament at school, and um, and I remember them saying or uh, the teacher saying, your parents have suggested you should play in this badminton tournament. I'm like, I'm a tennis player, I'm not a badminton player, you know, and they said, oh, you get the day off. And I said, okay, okay, all right, I can, uh, I can do that. <laughs> and... Uh, so I won the under-14 schoolgirls championships with all tennis strokes and played in bare feet uh, there as well uh, on concrete. And there were some talent scouts, I suppose you could call them, for the under-16s, um, badminton selection trials that were coming up coincidentally at Altona, not far from home. And they said, look, we've got these under-16 tryouts for the badminton team. Do you want to? And I was like, tennis player, not badminton player. And they said, uh, we'll give you a racket um and i was like okay yeah no worries i'll be there um that that meant quite a bit to me um <laughs> to be able to get uh, to be given a racket so i uh, turned up to the um uh, selection trials uh and made the team and and uh played in uh, Ballarat first and then the next year because i was sort of uh, still only 14 so uh played in new zealand the next year and um and look kicked kicked off from there it was um Again, as long as I'm active and I can be challenged, I'm a pretty happy person.
0: And you sent through, uh, before the interview, you sent through some really cool stats about badminton. Do you know them off by heart or should I read them out about the fast, being the fastest racket sport in the world?
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, most badminton players will know this because we love to throw it in the faces <laughs> of any other racket sport or um, bat sport. Um, So, yes, the fastest shot I believe at the moment is about 565 kilometres an hour. That's out of control. um, Which is a a smash. Yeah, I know. I know. It's great, isn't it? And uh, so um, the the beauty with Babington, so a lot of people think that the height of the net is something like a volleyball net, but it's not. It's actually 1.55 metres. So I'm 165, so net sort of is about here, which means that you can jump smash do that but it also means if if you're here that you're also not protected from those smashes so I have copped a few um and they will sit you on your backside so um yeah and um I think that's the thing when you compare it to say tennis and squash and people say yeah but the courts you know the court's much smaller than a tennis court but you can be within a meter of your opponent when they actually you know get onto that smash so and depending on the humidity. Um, overseas of the courts, it really affects the shuttle. So um, in a colder area, the shuttle will actually squeeze tighter so it will get faster when you've hit it. Um, when, it's, uh, when it's warmer, then it will actually expand. So then it, um, you know, uh, that affects it. Uh, in some locations where we play, we have to consider air conditioning. So you might be aiming a metre and a half outside the court to, to bring it back in. You might be kicking with the wind or against the wind. So that changes your tactics as well. Um, And that can happen at Olympic games. So you could be playing in a venue that you might maybe only hit up for 30 minutes in, all up as part of your lead up. And you've got to try and work out air conditioning, lighting, um, anything that's distracting around the court. I've played overseas and had an entire crowd wear white shirts behind their oppositions uh, or behind their player so that the opposition would lose the shuttle in their shirts and then get up halfway through and change ends and. Yes, it's all part of the fun. Wow, that's quite incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty, and and look, one of the big differences too between that. Well, why I love it, I think it's one of. Well, it is probably the hardest sport I play because you don't really get that advantage like in tennis with a big serve to serve aces and win easy points because it is an underarm serve. Um, but also too is. We don't do the quiet please and please turn your mobile phone off and do all of that sort of stuff. There's none of that in badminton. They will be noisy throughout the entire point overseas. So you might have a crowd of, you might play in Malaysia and have a crowd of 15,000 and they will be banging on drums. They'll be yelling out. They'll be calling out to their uh, Malaysian players to leave shots, which is, you know, completely illegal, but how do you stop 15,000 people calling out? Um and we have electronic scoreboards because you can't hear the umpires and sometimes you can't hear your doubles partner, you know, talking tactics with you and that. But you go overseas and play with that and then you come back uh, to Australia and you might play in front of a few parents and they're telling them to be quiet and you're like, please don't don't tell them to be quiet. It's all part of the atmosphere of, of playing BAM. It's like a soccer crowd, you know.
0: That's really cool. And one of the other interesting stats that you sent through about it, being widely reported that it's the second most participated sport in the world and the second most watched Olympic sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a sort of a long held, um, uh, belief. Um, and mainly because the Asian countries are so supportive of badminton. And it's funny because like I lived in China, um, a couple of times and at one stage for six months and you come back and people say to you, Oh, look, we've got this, um, player from, from China and, um, He's looking to play. We're not sure to put him in A grade, and he says he's played in a stadium, and that, and of course in Australia and England and places like that, everyone plays in stadiums. And I'm like, put them in A grade, at least in A grade, and uh, because in in overseas they will have a lot of outdoor courts, and everybody is playing. Um, so in China, Indonesia, Japan, um, Malaysia, you know, it's um it's huge, and then but then other places like Denmark and England. Um, Big supporters as well. India, another place. Um, so and then, uh, so they participate. And then, uh, in terms of watching yeah, the Olympic games, they really dominate uh, that, those crowds too. And only second behind soccer.
0: Yeah, it's quite it's quite something, isn't it? I, I'd love to talk about your Olympic experience and and was it something that as a kid you ever dreamt of?
1: Probably not. not as it, look, if my dream when I was a kid, and I remember when I made my first. Um, Australian team and said, I think said to my cousins that I, you know, made a badminton Australian team. They said, oh, but I thought you were going to go to Wimbledon and and play in the finals there for tennis. So it was like, oh, well, yeah, I suppose that that was my dream. Um, But I didn't, no, I I didn't know. I'd actually stopped playing badminton um, and was studying and got a job and remember being at my job and um, in my gap year from uni and then thinking, you know what, I may never be that good at something again and um, so I went off and sort of trained in secret because I was possibly not as fit as uh, I needed to be. And um, and then, yeah, and you start playing the circuit and, um, and then the, the, you know, that opportunity because Olympics, I think a lot of people think that you're just going to be the best in Australia and you get to go, that if you're the best in your country, you get to go. But I, I may have won sort of six or seven Australian titles, but that didn't mean that I was going to be definitely going to the olympics you have to there's a 12 month qualifying period so you need to be world ranked a certain world ranking at the end of that 12 months and then say no australian or no one from your continent um or you're sorry your um your local area so including new zealand fiji if no one has qualified out right then then it's the top one or the top pair from that area who will qualify so um there's no guarantee so it was um Look, it was an achievement to qualify and I definitely wanted to qualify outright. I didn't want to get in by what I felt was a bit of a you know, back, back doorway. But it does mean for 12 months, every time you go on the court, a win is a break even, a loss is a recalibration of what tournament do I go to now, who do I need to beat now. Um, there were a lot of formulas around number of tournaments versus um, the points that you'd won, the players you beat above you because you get bonus points for beating people above you but of course if people below you beat you so it was interesting no one when i was training in china i can remember playing the china open and i was the only westerner playing in the china open because it's their one chance um as a wider population to be able to show their selectors what they can do to then be allowed to go and play overseas so you literally could be beaten by somebody in china that's not on the ranking list and that's uh, not good in a not good in a, a world championship or an Olympic year. So, um, but because I was training there, um, I wanted to support their event, and they the Chinese were nice enough too that they split up their world junior championship pair to give me one of their players as as a partner for for ladies doubles because I was specialising in doubles. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting when you play sport and um, it can be pretty cutthroat. Um, and I can go to an area like China, who have got you know just an amazingly talented pool, but they were just as invested in my career um, as as I was. So,
0: yeah, it's really lovely. What was the experience like for you in Atlanta in 1996?
1: Yeah, so it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, I can see almost why people um, don't stay in the village. Uh, and I almost think you have to go to one Olympics to experience an Olympics because for a lot of sports, um, and you might have experienced a little bit the same, when you're in Australia and a badminton player, not many people know much about badminton in Australia. And a lot of the tournaments you go about your business, you, um, whereas when you get to the village, it's um, it's a whole community and um, there's such an energy and there are amazing people walking around with you. And... Um, It can actually be quite um, sapping of energy, but also distracting. Um, You really have to adapt your training. And that, like I mentioned before, um, we got 30 minutes to train on the actual courts. We were going to be playing the biggest matches of our lives. All the rest of the training happened elsewhere. Atlanta, they had some issues with transport, so bus drivers weren't sure where they had to go. So the 30 minutes we were supposed to get, they were late to get us there. Each court had a different aspect. So at times we had six to eight people um, on the court at one time just trying to hit, then move across to the next court to just try and hit just to get a feel for the court. What was the air conditioning doing? What were the lights like? Um, but, look, the my first game when we get introduced and they say, please put your hands together for, you know, the um, the top 16 uh, players in the world, um, that, that really hits home because it's, you are being measured along with all these other sports, along with these other amazing people who've arrived there. Um, and um, and you got to perform. And uh, it's, yeah, look, it's, it felt like a great accomplishment to, to get to Atlanta. And then Sydney felt more like what an Olympics is supposed to be because Atlanta as well, being in the village, you pretty much didn't travel outside of the village. You know, it's um, it was a different experience. Sydney was... Yeah, it was that Disneyland Olympics. Get more from your job with a career at
0: Victoria Police. The freedom to go on more holidays with nine weeks annual leave. More connection with your community where you'll make a difference every day. The chance to meet more people where workmates become your best mates. Get all of this and more with a career at Victoria Police. Search Police Careers today. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. I want to get to just before you actually got to Sydney. So you talked about the fact that you had pretty good hand-eye coordination. You you shot, would we say, shot an Olympic qualifying score
1: for Sydney in shooting. Where did that come from? Yeah. Um, yeah, so in, <laughs> Atlanta, in Atlanta and uh, once I was out of my event, so out of my event, uh, may have gone out um, uh to a venue with some other athletes who i knew who were uh olympic uh, shotgun shooters and maybe as a result of a bit of it well i may have made a backhand comment where i said well like, you know, are you really athletes you may be pretty good at bending the elbow and all that sort of thing so um and they said oh yeah ever handled a gun i wasn't a police officer then had nothing to do with guns no and they said oh, hundred dollars to see if you can hit a target and uh Pressure on, you know what it's like as a sports person. You don't, you never back away from a challenge like that. So, get back from Atlanta and uh, think, oh, geez, I've got to actually go through with this. Frightened, frightened of them. Uh, go out to Werribee Range, known Russell Mark um, from Western suburbs, and I thought better go and have a look and see whether I've got any chance of doing this. And one of the Olympic skeet shooters was there, and uh, he knew about the bet and said, look. I better teach you about actually holding a gun so you don't <laughs> smash the side of your face or your shoulder with the recoil. Um, set me up on, thankfully, the easiest station in the Olympic skeet. Um, so they, they move around a semicircle and shoot uh, targets that are coming out of two towers that are opposite each other. And so as you move around the stations, it changes the angle, um, how much lead you have to give on a target. So he set me up on a pretty easy target where the, the target was just going to go away from me and I just had to. Sh- point straight. And uh, and I looked over towards the clubhouse. So of course, I don't, I don't know anyone else there. I, I knew the two Olympians who were there. And there are 30 people standing now outside because they've all heard about this bet now as well. And luckily, I managed to just snip the end of the target off. Everybody saw it. So um, um, my, um, my reputation was intact there. But then I'd had decided to join the police force and my training had been about 40 hours a week playing badminton and I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to maintain that and certainly going through the first bit of training. So we looked at shooting and I had a bit more of a go at it and really enjoyed the reaction speeds um, of it and women's skeet shooting uh, was had just been put into the Olympic Games as well. So it meant there was opportunity, as we said before, about being... Um, being able to pivot our, it they hadn't they didn't have a lot of shooters um, who'd been given opportunity to really hone those skills. So um, yeah, so I uh, went to a, um, a selection um, for the AIS um, for a clinic there, and um, I just changed guns. A couple of um, it just sounds funny saying it like that, but I just changed guns uh, a couple of weeks before and uh, had um, whacked myself in the face. So I ended, had ended up with um, bruising and a bit of a, a stress fracture through my face uh, and went and shot, and shot uh, 22 out of 25, and they said, look, you've made the IOS, just please stop shooting because that looks so painful. So just stop doing You've made the IOS um, camp, come along to that, and uh, then shot in an event and shot uh, 66, which is was fairly low, but that because it was an introduction into... Um, Skeet shooting, 66 out of 75 was the qualifying score. It's probably about 72, I reckon, out of 75 now. But, um, um, so and then went up to the AIS. Uh, but at the same time, badminton were also saying, well, why won't you come back and play with us? We, You've you still got the skills to be able to do it. So they had a, uh, a selection tournament up in Canberra at the same time. So I literally played a badminton tournament on the weekend. Uh, and won the badminton tournament and then everybody else was coming back to Victoria to go back to the Victorian Institute of Sport and I stayed up there and went to the shooting um, camp at the AIS and uh, and enjoyed that. And, uh, look, uh, they picked one person for the Australian team. There was one qualifying spot for for Australia and a, and a fantastic shooter, Lauren Mark, um, uh, ended up going in that spot. And, I mean, she she was brilliant for that sport. So
0: but it was good fun. It's quite it's quite incredible. You make it was it 66 out of 75? You made that sound quite casual. I don't imagine many people could um just rock up and and do that.
1: Yeah, it's um do you know I, I think shooting, um, the more you think about it, the harder you can make it. So I think while I was I was it was almost a honeymoon period for me. Uh, the more I was just letting my natural reactions just go with it and shoot, um, the more then I started trying to think about why I was hitting or trying to hit it better, I started to miss. (laughs) So um, you can overthink it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
0: I'd love to go into now a little bit more about your career with Vic Police and probably some parallels that existed. You touched on this idea of when you were a kid playing footy, being the only girl or two girls in the team and, and having to use the umpire's change room. When you first started with the police, was it a similar story?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, so I arrived at uh, Cheltenham Police Station and there were two other females um, there at the time. I think probably the strength of the station was around 50. Um, so so we didn't have a change room as such. It was a converted uh, storeroom um, and to the point where you opened up the doors and to make sure that um, when you opened the doors up you didn't pretty much um, expose the other female. Uh, to the males walking past to go to the change rooms, there was a locker set up there, and on a quick changeover because you, you would sleep at a police station um, sometimes on a quick changeover, we would uh, throw a mattress down um, on the floor there. But uh, that meant no one could get in the door because literally there was no other room. So once the mattress was down, uh, and if the other female had to come on duty, but well, that was just bad luck; like they probably had to get changed in a, a toilet somewhere or. Um, so that, that's what it was like in policing. Um, Back then and uh, thankfully we've uh, we've got some changes we've still got a little bit to go but uh, I think we're up to around about the 29 30 percent now representation
0: and what has your progression been like to get to the point where you're now a senior sergeant
1: yeah so uh, so I've been in 26 years and um, and it's funny too like it, it's great being a senior sergeant but I' never um probably like sport for me I've got to enjoy it I've got to be challenged. I've got to. It's got to utilise all this energy up. I haven't changed, even though I'm now 52. Uh, I'm still that energetic uh, pain. So as long as I'm being challenged with work, I'm happy. So I was frontline uh, uniform for a long time working the divisional van. And um, funnily enough, uh, as much as I never really put expressions of interest in to go to other places, I was often approached to say, hey, look, we really need someone to go to um be a detective for a while, do you reckon you could go and do that? And I'm like, yeah, sure, no worries. And it's like, oh, traffic, um, do you think you could go and work in the traffic area? Yeah, absolutely, I can do that. And um, so I've probably in my 26 years spent, I I don't know, um, 17, 18 years seconded off doing other things. But what it meant for me too was I never really, I never even got sick of the van, to to be honest, working that. because as you can see, I'm a bit of a talker. So um, getting to talk to the community and hearing their stories and um, being able to interact um, with the community is the important part for me. That is why why I joined. Um, so I've been lucky there. And then I was getting pushed a lot to go for promotion and I was upgraded a lot without going for positions. Um and then I, yeah, I, I applied for for sergeant, and uh, so I've worked as an analyst as well. Um, I've been in charge of analysts just to understand and and uh, in a lot of strategy roles as well. So writing strategies, hopefully to um, not just combat crime but um, prevent crime. Um, and I suppose those parallels are with the sport. Whilst we have crime, whilst we have road trauma and other things, and also working conditions for our people, whilst we have all those things and our jobs. We've always got a job to do and, our, you know, um, to be better. And that for me, sport's are the same unless you're number one in the world. Uh, and even then trying to hold on to number one in the world, you've always got to be developing and, and improving. So that's what I really love about this job. Um, if you want to be motivated enough, there's always something to do and always somewhere to go to do something different as well if you uh, if you need a change.
0: How did that work for you while you were preparing for the Sydney Olympics, balancing your training
1: and your work. Yeah. So um, so obviously when I when I decided that I would um, try and qualify for Sydney so that the qualification is exactly the same, so uh, still a year of playing tournaments, but obviously I couldn't go and live overseas for six months, which is what I would do when I would be playing the European circuit or playing the Asian circuit. So really had to pick and choose the tournaments I was going to play at, really had to perform at those tournaments. But I was brand new into the police as well. So um, it wasn't a case of being able to go to the request book and say, right, I need need all these off to play tournaments because I had a job to do and that's what they were paying me for. I was really fortunate at uh, Cheltenham where um, the other members there, knowing that I never pressed to, or I didn't think it was an entitlement for me to have time off. Um, or have certain shifts, they would often offer them to me. So they would, um, they really worked in and said, oh, look, we see that you haven't um, been able to get to your training as much here. Um, would you like me to take your afternoon shifts here? Um, I did work minim- what we call a minimum break night shift, which means that every uh, 28 days I would be on night shift. And the reason for that was when you did um, a stint of night shift, you then got six days off, um, which – meant that I could then fly to a closer tournament, um, whether it be in Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, not worth as many points um, as your Japan opens and all England's and world championships and all of those. But it did mean that I could at least try and tick over. I, I meant I had to win them. And sometimes, you know, there's no mean feat when you've actually been on night shift. Uh, so sleeping during the day, I get on a flight now, you've got to win five, five games to win the championship. But... Um, I had a chance. So my work colleagues were fantastic in that they, they gave me the chance to qualify. Um, and then I will say, and I'm not a big one for people carrying around mobile phones and doing all that sort of stuff, but I did on the opening ceremony, I did take my phone and the station called me while I was going around in the opening ceremony and just so they could be a part of it. Um, and then I bought T-shirts for everybody at the, um, at the station.
0: That's really cool. Because I love this idea, like whether you're playing in a team sport or or you're an individual athlete, there's always like teams within teams, right? And and your colleagues at that station were part of that journey for you to be able to go there. So that's really cool that they could be a part of that moment in the opening ceremony.
1: Oh, I wouldn't have qualified if it wasn't for for what they did for me. So um, and that, and that's the thing. And they've all got busy lives. They've all got their own priorities. You know, um, their kids. Going to school or bringing up kids and going to pick people up from childcare and doing all of those things were no, absolutely no less uh, as important as as me trying to qualify for an Olympic Games. But they knew how important it was to me. Um, so yeah, I, I I really owe that um, that appearance at that Olympics to them. Can you share a favourite story of your time with
0: the Victoria Police?
1: Oh wow. Okay, so obviously we go to some pretty serious ones. Um, I got to I do a lot of emergency management, um, fires, floods, all of those sorts of things. So, uh, But actually something that would be an interesting one was going to a report, believe not, of a cow on the Gippsland Highway. So you think, yeah, cow on the Gippsland Highway, no worries. Um, I come from farming areas. I know how to deal with cows. But it, it, when I got there, we realised that this wasn't a cow. This was a bull that was on the middle of the Gippsland Highway in the middle of peak hour traffic. And uh yeah so that kind of changes the circumstances you know a little bit but we still had to deal with it so um, there were a set of gates nearby and they went to a golf course and uh, so it was myself and the ranger out there and um, so we started to try and push this bull uh, <laughs> quietly in the middle of peak hour traffic towards these set of gates and we got them through the set of gates and and um, but, of course, then you've got to deal with the fact that you've now pushed them into a golf course area. You can't just leave them on the golf course. Um, we can't leave the bull on the golf course. <laughs> and as we were in the entranceway, there was a sign, you know, a speed hump sign. So you got the speed hump, there's a speed hump sign. And I kid you not, it was like out of a cartoon where this bull that did have horns um, walked up to the speed hump sign and started um, – Roughing its horns up against the speed hump sign. So it literally looked like a cartoon that this thing was trying to sharpen its horns. And then it turned around and looked at both of myself and the ranger and decided, no, I'm uh, I'm not done with you two yet. And uh, started coming back towards us. And I just thought, how is this? And and how do you ever explain this to anyone um, that this has happened? So uh, we got out of the way of the uh, the bull and it started to just uh, headbutt into the um, the gates. And um, funnily enough, a person whose fence, because we've got quite the audience now because we had a heap of um, houses that backed onto this driveway and they were all lined up on the fence, so great, uh, and a guy with a, a whip, stock whip, came out and cracked his stock whip and drove the bull further on into the golf course, and there was a bit of a paddock there, and we put it into those gates. And as far as we were concerned, we had contained that bull, <laughs> and we left it to somebody else. So,
0: <laughs> someone else's problem.
1: Yeah, but yeah, I mean, animals are just interesting when it comes to being a police officer. Alpacas—I uh, have been chased by an alpaca as well <laughs> over a fence. It, and apparently, only wanted us to feed it apples, which it was used to. Uh, we we didn't—we didn't quite know that. We were there just to serve some paperwork, but. Uh, <laughs>
0: You've, you've lived um, a very exciting life so far and I've, um, I've really loved getting the chance to chat to you today and hear some of your stories. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing those with us.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Chloe. And no, I've really uh, appreciated the, the opportunity to talk about both, both careers. Amazing. Thanks so much for
0: listening. If you got something out of this episode, I would absolutely love it if you could send it on to one person who you think might enjoy it. Otherwise, subscribe, give us a review and make sure you follow us on Instagram at the female athlete project to stay up to date with podcast episodes, merch drops, and of course, news and stories about epic female athletes.